Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Jordan and I started dating when we were only 15 years old. We both went to nerd schools, Paxson and Stanton, respectively, and we were introduced by my best friend from middle school. By 16, I knew I had met my future husband, and I have been hopelessly in love with him ever since. Meeting so young meant that we got to grow up together, which was difficult and fun all at the same time. Jordan certainly has seen me at my worst and at my best. I spent my first semester of college taking my own classes and helping Jordan with his. We learned how to be adults together. We made lots of mistakes along the way. We cared for each other through health scares, law school stresses, discerning a call to priesthood, and now becoming parents. And we spent our first year of marriage crammed in a 500-square-foot apartment with each other. Both of us have certainly changed from the 15-year-old kids we once were. But one of the interests we still share has only intensified as we got older. We both love food. When we were in high school, we'd meet each other after school for sushi. In college, we'd meet each other for lunch outside the hot dog stand that has been on FSU's campus for decades to chat over a great hot dog and a Coke. When we got married, I at least had some idea how to cook some meals, whereas Jordan could boil water. So I took the lead while he played sous chef with the knife set we were given at our wedding. Jordan, who worked at a grocery store all through high school and college, was always around food. And while it took him years to finally appreciate a vegetable, Jordan's love of cooking quickly outgrew my own. Jordan moved up from sous chef, and we started trading off cooking duties. The beginning was rough. As Jordan discovered spices, he started adding them to everything, sometimes to things that did not need every spice in the drawer. We had a serious talk one time after he, se- after he heavily seasoned our chili with clove and cinnamon. <laughs> and we had another talk after he discovered the wonders of garlic. My own cooking was not exemplary, and in our first year of marriage, I think I fed him chicken six out of the seven days of the week. But somehow our love and our love of food continued to grow. As I graduated law school and was awaiting for my bar results, unemployed for the first time in my life, my cooking only got better. I found recipe after recipe online and discovered cream sauces and butter, which I discovered to be far superior to the margarine I was raised on. We continued learning more about cooking and trading off cooking duties depending on schedules. And of course, having a little bit more money around, we ate out a lot expanding our palates with cuisines from across the world. When we moved to Suwannee, Tennessee, all of that eating out stopped. We both had to quit our jobs to move to Tennessee, and for the first time since he was 15, Jordan found himself unemployed. With less than no money, and with entirely too much time on his hands, Jordan spent most of his time trying to cook new meals, 
even recreating our favorite Indian, Thai, Italian, and Vietnamese dishes from home. The student had clearly surpassed the master. And frankly, Jordan doesn't even really want me in the kitchen anymore when he's cooking. But I'm not complaining, because that man is a fantastic cook, and I am a very good eater. (laughs) The only time he does let me in the kitchen is to taste. As he cooks things, I sneak in for a bite of this or a spoonful of that. He asks me things like, what does this need? And my answer is almost always the same. Salt. As a kid learning to cook, I just thought salt made things salty. But as I've gotten older and learned more about cooking, I've learned that salt does so much more than that. A lot of salt makes food salty. But a little salt can uncover flavors hiding in a dish. The flavors are there, but a little bit of salt helps those flavors become more pronounced. It brings them to the forefront of your palate. It reveals flavors that you could not taste before. Salt can cause us to have an epiphany. The word epiphany literally means a revelation, an unveiling, a manifestation, or being made known. And in the church, epiphany and the season after are all about those things. During the season after the epiphany, we use this time to contemplate the manifestation of Christ, the revelation of Jesus as Messiah, and the unveiling of God's plan for creation. And during the season after epiphany, we use the gospel stories like grains of salt to bring this true meaning to the surface. On Epiphany, the wise men arrived, declaring that this newborn infant will grow up to be the king of the Jews. As the weeks have continued this year, the evangelist Mark has thrown more grains of salt on Jesus. We see Jesus revealed as the Son of God at his baptism. We see Jesus as Messiah and all-knowing with Nathaniel. We see him preaching And calling disciples to him. We see him teaching in the synagogue and commanding unclean spirits. And today, Jesus and all his glory is revealed to Peter and James and John on a mountaintop. Each of these stories is a grain of salt, revealing the true nature of Christ to the people of his community and to us reading these stories centuries later. And much like salt, we add a little bit at a time as to not overwhelm the flavor of the dish. We can make food too salty, just as we can be overwhelmed with the revelation of Christ's glory if we try to take it in all at once. Jesus seems to understand that the people cannot go from living in darkness to a full sun in the sky. So he gradually moves them into the light. Much like a sunrise, we see the light building during the season after the Epiphany. It starts with the sky lightning, of declarations of prophecies and scripture being fulfilled. But it is not until Christ begins his ministry that the fullness of his glory starts to become visible to those who are looking. As he begins calling disciples, teaching, 
preaching and healing people, the rays of light peek out from behind the horizon. And while this may start telling the observant that something great is happening, the Jews have seen prophets or even magi and charlatans before. They are cautious, and the sun still appears to want to remain hidden. Even in Mark, the shortest gospel that seems to be rushing us to the cross by using the word immediately 42 times, Jesus does not seem anxious to reveal his full identity. He commands the demons, the unclean spirits who recognize his divinity, to be silent lest they let the cat out of the bag. Jesus understands that to walk around declaring himself the Messiah would not announce the good news or might actually detract from his mission. So he doesn't rush it. He even tells the disciples who witness his transfiguration not to run down the mountain and tell everyone until after the crucifixion. While Jesus is easing the world into it, he knows some folks will not even notice the sun has risen until his glory is staring them in the face. Until the sun becomes so bright, even the blind will struggle to deny it. The revelation of Jesus as Christ is supposed to sneak up on us. And this year it certainly has. As the season after Epiphany is coming to a close, examine how Christ is being revealed to you right here and right now. Is the sun fully in the sky with the rays beating on your face? Or are you just noticing the sky looks a little bit lighter than it did last week? Are you still adoring a sleeping, cooing infant Jesus, a child of great potential that might grow into the Son of God? Or are you ready for Jesus as a full-grown man who is a rabbi, a miracle worker, and the Messiah? The glory of Christ is revealed to us daily in our lives, through our lives, and within Scripture. So as this season comes to a close, really embrace the idea of revelation, of an unveiling, of an epiphany. Remove your sunglasses, add some salt, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.